Hey everyone, this is Joe Waters from SelfishGiving.com. I wanted to welcome you to Cause Talk Radio. And of course, on the line with me today, Cause Marketing Forum's uh, diva, uh, Megan Strand. Hey, Megan. Hey, Joe. Good morning. <laughs> I was trying to pick the best name for you. I like diva. I'll go with diva. You go with diva anyway. So, so how you been? All right? I'm excited, Joe. I know. It's a big day. Today's a big day for Cause Talk Radio. This is our 100th episode, yep. and we have delayed releasing it because we were looking for just the perfect guest, and I think we have found him today. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. So on the line with us today is Richard Swart. He is the Director of Research on Crowd Finance at UC Berkeley and the author of the World Bank's Report on Global Crowdfunding. Hey, Richard, how are you? I'm doing good. I've never been interviewed by Diva before, too. This is exciting. <laughs> First time for everything. Hey, Richard, wait till you see some of the names she calls me. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> hey, but thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, uh, you folks, I mean, looking at what you've been doing online and, and the things you've been talking about with crowdfunding, you know, it's just a really fascinating topic. And, you know, we want to talk a little bit about some of the best practices uh, for crowdfunding and for brands that want to use it for CSR. But first, Richard, tell us about how do you define crowdfunding? Briefly, it's any mechanism that reaches out through social media to engage people around a product or a project. And okay. obviously, there's a funding component to that. Mm-hmm. You're asking people to vote with their wallets, not just their likes or their social media impressions. You're asking people to physically commit to getting involved in what you're trying to create or back. Right, right. So it's both sides of the table here in terms of like this just isn't a like campaign or something like that. This is actually getting people engaged in it. It actually it started in the uh, arts community with uh, independent film production, people trying to get their films backed. The very mm-hmm. first crowdfunding product in the U.S. was Indiegogo for independent films, and then it sort of grew out of the arts and creative space into the non-for-profit space, and now it's in the corporate world. And when did that Indiegogo campaign start in the, in the arts and the film sector? Uh, the platform launched in 2008, and there had been some random smatterings of people trying to use Facebook and things beforehand, but that was the first organized platform in the United States in 2008. So they went live. They started 2007, but went live 2008. And I think the model that our audience is probably really familiar with is the donors choose model, which is, you know, Charles Best, their founder and CEO, talks a lot about crowdfunding uh, as the basis of their platform and, you know, helping people, allowing people to help a particular classroom by donating, you know, $5 toward a science project or what have you. So we've definitely seen it in the cause marketing, nonprofit, corporate partnership space as well. Mm-hmm. Hey, Megan and Richard, just, just to be clear on something, too, when it comes to crowdfunding, and Richard, you're probably the best person to answer this, is when Toyota does something when they give away cars and people go on to uh, choose which of those cars goes to which organization, is that a form of cause uh, of crowdfunding or do you call it something different? I'll try to be non-academic. It probably fits in the really broad umbrella of crowdfunding if you think about corporate crowdfunding, Mm -hmm. but it's not what most people think about. Okay. Yep. Because, you know, that's, I mean, to be truthful too, and I was even talking to Megan about this before the show is in a lot of ways, especially, you know, these being around so long. I mean, that's what I generally think of is I think of like like campaigns and stuff like that. And, you know, people are committing their vote, they're committing their time and stuff like that, but they're not really committing their money, which has always been a big source of contention for me. And that's why I love some of the things that you're doing. 
you know, I think of crowdfunding as the, as the ultimate form of social engagement. A like is nice, but a dollar is better. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. So tell us about um, tell us about some of the best practices when it comes to crowdfunding, and share with us any examples you would like to of of successful uh, case studies. Well, let me answer that in two parts. The first is the best practices in crowdfunding in the broadest sense is it all yep. starts with your passion and your story. Mm-hmm. So even though there's dollars involved and even though you're asking for contributions, the psychology of giving and crowdfunding still mirrors philanthropic giving, even for corporate campaigns, even for for-profit enterprises. Mm-hmm. So people want to back a person who has a passion to do something. And so you have to tell your story in a way that resonates with an audience. And it's primarily done through video marketing so mm-hmm. mostly it's the video you put up on the crowdfunding site so the mm-hmm. best practices begin with be really clear about your purpose what's your passion what's your backstory and then how do you get people involved in what you're doing you have to have a mechanism for engagement to make people feel like they're part of what you're doing and npr always gives away the t-shirts and the mugs and i've got a closet full of them but you don't really <laughs> feel like you're part of the npr community right <laughs> you need to have give people a way to feel like they're part of a project so very simply that's the beginning of it and then secondly, the rewards or the donations that you give away to people have to sort of match the brand or the cause of what you're doing. So you have to give people a consistent message across your rewards that resonates with what your organization is trying to do. And a lot of people make mistakes when they do that. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's and fascinating that you're talking about that incentive piece as being such a cornerstone of crowdfunding, because we've certainly seen that in the cause marketing space, that it's mm-hmm. nice when people say, oh, would you like to donate a dollar to this charity? That's nice. And sometimes people will do it. But if you say, would you like to donate a dollar to this charity and get a $5 coupon book in return, it's mm-hmm. far more effective. So it's interesting yeah. that that's a real cornerstone. I wonder if you could give us an example of, of a crowdfunding campaign that does this particularly well. Uh, I'm having a hard time. Let, let me think of why I'm probably not going to get the rewards exactly right, but I'll make it close. A sure. couple of college kids decided that they like to go camping, and they also like to have their iPads and their iPods charged while they were camping. Mm-hmm. But they're metallurgical engineering students. So they married two pieces of metal together, put it over a camp stove. The physics between the two pieces of metal generates electricity, so they call it the power cooking pot. So you can basically oh, I recharge saw that. your iPhone. I saw it, it, a great on, campaign. Uh, it was on Shark Tank. Yeah, they ended up on Shark Tank. Those two students yeah. from my last university where I taught. They cool. were two, two undergraduate kids did it as a project while they were students. Yep. They've now launched themselves into a successful company. Yep. So in the beginning, it was, if you give us X amount of dollars, we'll give you a pot. If you give us more money, we'll give you a pot, and we'll go camping with you. If you give us a lot more money, you can come to a party and talk about this. I think they gave away, like, Dutch oven cooking recipes. So it's all around mm-hmm. the experience of using the pot. Mm-hmm. Another example is, and, of course, I'm a professor, so I have college kids' stories. Um, there was a Rwandan refugee student came to a university in um, the Rocky Mountain region. He learned to snowboard, and that was sort of his psychological release from the terrors he had experienced in Rwanda. Mm-hmm. The other students wanted to make a documentary about this kid's life story, so they started with a rave on campus to raise money. So crowdfunding started with an event, then they did crowdfunding. And you could actually crowdfund your way into the movie bit parts. Oh. They allowed people to participate in the movie and get little cameo appearances and credits. We yep. should That's crowdfund Cause Talk Radio, Joe. There you go. I'll tell you. When you a chance I mean. to be a producer or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that. Now, so, you know, Richard, but I'm curious about something like this. When you talk about crowdfunding, why is it the future? Why is it, why is it the mechanism that kind of works better than anything else? Well, for different purposes. One is people basically live in social media and digital space now. The vast, right. Especially the younger generation. Millennials and down. 
their primary means of interaction are through some sort of digital technology. Right. So that's where the so that's, that's where your customers are. That's where your donors are. So you put your campaign where they already are. Mm-hmm. Secondly, there's a huge distrust in the younger generation of formal institutions, mm-hmm. banks, major foundations, government. You know, this generation coming up basically doesn't trust anything that's been around for more than 20 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So rather than appealing to grant money to the American Red Cross or other large foundations, I'm not attacking them, but just generational divide here, appeal to them to give money to a very specific cause where they can actually see the impact and they can feel like they participate in something. They want to be part of the community. Yep. So it's really aligning with the generational preferences of mm-hmm. the up-and-coming generation. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I and, often say too, Richard, that I think what's interesting about millennials, and I'm Gen Z, um, you know, Megan acts like she's a millennial, but she's not. She's a Gen Z. <laughs> and uh, but, but, you know, one of the things I think, and I was wondering if you agree with this, is I think millennials are much more influential than when we were younger and when we were kids. And they owe that to one social media, but two, they have that attitude that they're getting all that information and they're connected, not to institutions, but to one another. And social media makes that possible. No, I I totally agree with you. And this is the first generation in a long time in world history that's incredibly cohesive. And all Mm -hmm. the demographic data shows that they really have similar attitudes and expectations. Mm -hmm. So you have a demographic bubble moving up that cares about social causes, that acts together, that actually puts their money and their time behind projects. It's great news for the donor community. Mm-hmm. Let's, I want to go back to talking about brands, though, because we, you know, we started going down the road of individual stories, which is also fascinating. But how does a brand then break into the crowdfunding space, whether they're a nonprofit brand or a corporate brand, if it's kind of this, there's this mistrust of, you know, the man and larger entities, and you have to kind of p- suss out this very personal, very passionate story. How how do brands do that in a way that's effective? Well, for, I'll give you an example. Dodge Cars at the Dodge Dart Registry, which has probably been the most successful corporate crowdfunding campaign that I've seen so far. Mm-hmm. And one thing is they created a highly interactive website where you could crowdfund a vehicle. And literally, you could crowdfund a car, the steering wheel, the paint, the tires. You could literally crowdfund pieces of a car. Mm-hmm. So it generated a rich interactive website. What they did, though, and they were brilliant, is they realized that people weren't going to crowdfund a car for your Aunt Edith. What they would do, though, is crowdfund a car to give to a women's shelter or a homeless shelter or Meals on Wheels. And so these not-for-profit organizations started launching campaigns to have people grant them a car, well, Mm -hmm. crowdfund a car. Well over 1 million social media impressions generated in just 30 days. Mm-hmm. 39,000 campaigns got started. So you think about 39,000 people evangelizing your product or your brand. Right. Yep. And they had almost zero negative impressions in social media. So it was mm-hmm. incredibly positive feedback consistently. Mm-hmm. And it mobilized support for these organizations, and then they had spillover effects. So many groups got some local media and press about what they were trying to do, which had long-term benefits for the groups even after the crowdfunding campaign. So mm-hmm. they really helped mobilize support for not-for-profits through this camp crafting initiative and as a brand they also sold a lot of sold a lot of cars the next quarter they only sold 39 cars through the initiative mm-hmm. but their sales in the next two quarters were up significantly like doubling from the previous right. quarters so they were able to both align themselves with social groups and they were able to sell more cars that's a brilliant execution yeah that's absolutely brilliant and i we did read the case study in advance i have a question though on that point 
it seemed to me the way that the case study was written, and you, you'll have to answer this for me if, if this is accurate or not. It seemed to me that, as you said, their initial attempt was to say, hey, I'm Joe Waters. I think you should buy me a car for my birthday. So mm, I'm going to put good. up a, yeah, so I'm going to put up a crowdfunding campaign. You guys can crowdfund it. It seemed to me that it was the audience that was the one who started successfully coming up with cause-focused stories. So yeah. in that instance, the lesson might not be the brand was so brilliant. The lesson might have been the brand was brilliant because they allowed the customers to make it what they wanted it to be versus mm -hmm. what their initial impression yep. was. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely correct. I think that the brand was smart because they were able to listen to their audience. And money corporations pretend to and claim they listen to their audience, but that basically mm -hmm. means once a month in a board meeting, they look at a spreadsheet of you know, Twitter ratios. Yep. They don't actually take any action. And yep. I think Dodge was smart enough to recognize this is where the passion was. And other, other brands notice that outcome and are going to start following that lead. Mm -hmm. No, I think, you know, I think something like that is so key, uh, Richard. We've actually talked about it on this show before, too, is what nonprofits and I think companies need to learn is that the power is in, uh, you know, millennials. It's in do-gooders in general. And what we need to do is instead of creating vehicles for them for fundraising, we need to give them the opportunity to do it. And that's where, I mean, even in Boston here, Richard, after, you know, the Boston Marathon bombing, we saw that, you know, these two guys from Emerson College put together a T-shirt campaign with Ink for the People out in Milwaukee that raised a million dollars for the victims. And, you know, and, you know, what I always say, too, is where's the nonprofit in this? There isn't one. And, you know, and, and that's where I think the real opportunity is, is in the individuals. It's a radical shift. Let me give you one fast example. There, I'm a member of the Royal Society of Arts in England, and mm -hmm. they used to give grants to members to do not-for-profit work in the communities. Mm -hmm. But they, they pivoted their model. What they now do is they provide crowdfunding training to their members, and then you put through the campaign that you want to launch, and then they'll lend their extensive social media voice to back your efforts to do crowdfunding to make a difference. So, rather, mm -hmm. so their budget is basically towards supporting their own members' efforts as opposed to just giving a check to a few members based on some committee that votes once a year. Yep. Hmm. What they've been able to do is for the same budget, they've probably had a 30 to 50x impact. Wow. Mm -hmm. Pivoting their models of supporting the initiatives through crowdfunding of their, of their members as opposed to doing standard philanthropic committees, here's a check. So, that, that model is changing, and there's a huge shift happening where, where foundations and NGOs are realizing that they need to figure out how to get behind and support crowdfunding mm -hmm. rather than seen as a threat. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that nonprofit model. And we know you've recently been in Africa t teaching about crowdfunding to nonprofits there. Talk a little bit about best practices for nonprofits. And I, if you can, get as, get as practical as you can here. You know, why would you... When would you use a crowdfunding campaign, and what are some of the elements that absolutely have to be there if you're a nonprofit trying to roll out a crowdfunding campaign? Yeah, I'll try to make this concise. First of all, you <laughs> need to take a very small bite of the apple. So crowdfund uh, the launch of a pilot project somewhere, or crowdfund the development of a new water system, and you want to test something. So it has to be a practical, definable outcome where people can physically touch it or visually see it in a video. Mm -hmm. It can't be, you know, ongoing support and funding for mm -hmm. operations. Mm -hmm. No one's going to crowdfund that. Right. Yeah. Secondly, you need to be able to show how it directly impacts people you're trying to help. Right. So 
it can again be your staff support. It needs to be this, you know, we're going to build a well testing out this new technology. We need your support to make it happen so we can provide water to 600 people in this village, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. You then need to make it very clear that this is part of an ongoing process because what we know is that almost 20% of people that give to a campaign become serial donors. Mm-hmm. And they'll continue to back what you're doing. So think about a storyline of multiple projects or multiple phases of a project, and you're trying to get them to support you early on. Mm-hmm. Well, Secondly, you're talking to you're talking to millennials. There's mm-hmm. a recent pilot project that was done. Um, eight, I, can't, I can't disclose the person or the organization. 86% of the people that gave money were new to the organization, meaning not existing donors, and 56% were millennials. Mm-hmm. So it's outreach combined with engaging millennials around a specific, very small project and set your bar relatively low. And the reason for that is you don't want to have a failed campaign because it really hurts you moving forward. So mm-hmm. start with something very small and then build your base and do a series of crowdfunding projects. Don't think of going out there and trying to meet half your annual budget with one big crowdfunding project. You know, it's interesting, too, and I think what you're emphasizing, uh, Richard, which I think is so great, is you're emphasizing that, um, you know, millennials are focused not on organizations, but on impact. And, you know, I like to say social impact is the fire, social media is the gasoline uh, in this this equation here, you know, with people, and this is how we can get them engaged. Talk a little bit about the, the pricing structure when you're doing a crowdfunding campaign, I'm hearing you saying it needs to be small and tangible. You have to show the impact. And I love that trying to get people into hooked into some sort of storyline. But I was noticing on the Ice Bucket Challenge, you know, of course, I did it with the rest of the world. Joe didn't, by the way. He just wrote the check. But when you go <laughs> on to the, when you go onto the site, the, the minimum suggested donation amount was $35. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could you could enter something else, but you know. So what what's the pricing methodology in something like this in crowdfunding for nonprofits? And there's no art and science behind it, but what's emerging as best practice is do something around twenty five, thirty bucks. Have an entry level that's basically going out to dinner or having lunch. Right. The average crowdfunding donation on the major websites is seventy four dollars. Hmm. So you think about the statistical spread of that. You have people putting in two hundred, three hundred. You have some people putting yeah. in ten. Mm-hmm. But make sure you've got an entry point which feels like it's meaningful but isn't that expensive to a 22-year-old kid somewhere just getting out of college or still in college, thinking mm-hmm. about millennials. Mm-hmm. You then mm-hmm. want a somewhat more expensive where it feels like they're actually making a contribution, whether that's 75, 100, 150, something along that range. Again, not really a significant amount of money, but if you will, that's your you know, good, better, best, that's your better model. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You then want to provide one or two options at much more significant contribution levels, $500, $1,000, people that are really passionate about your project that want to become donors to what you're doing. And typically at those price points, you invite them to an activity, an event, they somehow get to physically interact with you or what you're doing, mm-hmm. if that's possible in your model. So those become sort of your continuing donors mm-hmm. in traditional models. So you want them. Then you typically have a your this really high aspirational goal of, 10,000, 20,000, some really high end number. Very rarely do those ever happen, but you want to give somebody the option. Hey, Richard, would you agree? One of the things I think is interesting about these donation totals, and one of the things that Megan and I have talked about, and one of the things I have argued on my uh, blog, Selfish Giving, is talking about uh, the future of giving is really micro in that 
as social impact, social causes become embedded in every aspect of our lives, you know, that we won't be looking at, you know, $25, $30, $40 from someone any, anymore. We'll be looking for a uh, dollar, 50 cents, you know what I mean? But it, the volume will be that much higher because of all the different types of ways that we can contribute to good causes. Do you see the future as micro? I think it's micro, but just, you know, being a finance guy, I'm concerned about transaction costs. It's going to be hard with the existing models to do $1 and make any money off that. But I agree that you're going to see models emerging that are much smaller. In fact, in uh, Africa, they have a product called Imshanga, which mm -hmm. is uh, all based on social media. So there's no website. It's basically an app. And people can post an image of the project and their need, whether it's, you know, somebody in the village broke their arm. We need to get a car to get her to the hospital to have her arm fixed. Right. We need $80. And people can use their phones and use them in Pelsa and um, contribute 50 cents or a dollar or $2. And that model is working already in Africa and it's working great. Mm. So I think that model will eventually migrate here to the U.S. where people can crowdfund for very small amounts of money. But there's really no infrastructure or technology today that makes a lot of sense to those very small. So maybe the U.S. equivalent of micro is five bucks. Mm. Right. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, Absolutely. I do think it's going to be much smaller. I think the model has to shift. Instead of like a university looking to their 60-year-old alumni to write a $10,000 check, it's mm -hmm. looking to 1,026-year-olds to write a $50 check. And right. that's a huge shift in the way people think about engaging and who they're trying to target. Mm -hmm. Well, and just on that logistical note, I mean, you brought up transaction charges for smaller donation amount. Are there things that you need to look out for when you're doing something with more people that, that you should kind of keep an eye on? Is there, is there a bad part of that? Not really a bad part, but I think people need to recognize that there are costs to doing crowdfunding. There's both the cost of the platform and there's cost of the payment processes. And it can, it can be as high as 15, 18% sometimes right. of, mm -hmm. your, of your total raise. I mean, no fundraising is free, so there's right. always some cost attached. But I think people yep. need to be very cognizant and aware of that. And then secondly, a lot of people dramatically underestimate how much work it is to be good at crowdfunding. Mm. It really requires a lot of work. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a set of campaigns, set it and forget it. It's a two-way conversation that occurs upon multiple social media channels over several weeks. And to be effective, you have to have people that are present and engaged in those conversations. Well, mm -hmm. just, the, just the video piece itself, that is work. I mean, it's depending on your technology, you know, it, it, is, it is work. So that's a fantastic point. Well, if you can believe it, we have actually come to the end of our episode, or at the end of our 100th episode. And Damn, what we could have talked to him all day. I know, right? Sure. What a fantastic episode so this has been. I know. Yep. Richard, thank you so, so much. And I know you've got some really interesting things coming up that people are going to want to know about. So where can people find out more about you, more about crowdfunding, and about what you're working on? Well, we have a website at Berkeley. Uh, this crowdfunding.berkeley.edu takes you to our executive education page where we talk about some of our corporate stuff. And then if you just look me up on LinkedIn, and it says Richard Swart, S-W-A-R-T, and then it's Ph.D. There's only a couple of us in the country. I post every article <laughs> that I write and everything that I publish on LinkedIn. That's sort of my blog. Oh, so fabulous. If anybody wants to follow me on LinkedIn, can find everything that I do. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much. We definitely will be doing that. Joe, where can people find you online? 
Well, they can find me, of course, on my blog at SelfishGiving.com. They can find me Minute to Minute on Twitter at Joe Waters and especially around the hashtag Cause Marketing. And also check out my Pinterest boards, up over 3,000 examples of of, um, of Cause Marketing campaigns. And I think I'm going to create a board now for crowdfunding because, Absolutely. believe it or not, I didn't really have one. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So I'm definitely going to do that. What about you, Megan? Where can people find you? I'm also on Twitter at Megan Strand, and I tweet for the Cause Marketing Forum at TweetCMF, and I also blog for the Cause Marketing Forum at Cause Update. And you can find Cause Talk Radio on Stitcher Smart Radio as well as iTunes. We do recommend you subscribe to the podcast. Please go ahead and do that, and we would love it if you would leave us a comment on this, our 100th episode. Thanks so, so much on behalf of Joe and myself and Richard. We really appreciate your time today and being here, and we'll see you next time for Cause Talk Radio. <laughs>